Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is the eighth session of our discussion of the nature of Middle-earth. Uh, and uh, before we get going, just a few quick announcements today. We have our holiday-themed uh, uh, announcements today. We have three separate things going on in preparation for the holidays to give uh, you know, folks in our Signum community some fun alternative uh, Christmas present ideas and all that kind of thing. Um, we have, uh, first we have, of course, our uh, uh, Anytime Audit special. As always, we have our uh, uh, holiday discount for our Anytime Audits. If you've been thinking about um, doing one of our asynchronous audits for our uh, master's degree courses, uh, you can get any of those uh, at only $75 a piece. Those can also be given away as gift certificates. Um, so that is option number one. Option number two is we have a bunch of holiday designs um, on our... Um, uh, Redbubble store. So if you go to uh, go to signumuniversity.org, go under the support menu, you will see a link there to our Redbubble page, or you can search for Signum on Redbubble. That should work too. Uh, and uh, we've got a, a, a bunch of fun stuff there, uh, which I uh, commend to your attention, um, including several people have been um, uh, several people have been clearly enjoying our new language is the primary art uh, design that we put up in response to uh, the Nature of Middle Earth uh, discussion we had a couple uh, weeks ago. Anyway, so the third thing, of course, is space. Space tokens make awesome gifts. Uh, and in fact, one of the really cool things that some people have begun to do, which I was hoping that people would do, um, is to purchase multi-packs of, uh, of tokens and give them away. Uh, bring friends along. Basically, find some friends and family members who would like to, especially, you know, you don't have to all do the same module. It's totally fine, you know, if you each want to do your own thing. Um, but uh, there have been a couple cases where, you know, some groups of folks, but maybe it's just, uh, you know, uh, husbands and wives, maybe it's uh, a whole family, uh, have kind of gotten together, gotten a bunch of module, uh, gotten a bunch of tokens, and um, uh, all signed up for the same module. So uh, definitely recommend that. Um, but how do you wrap a space token? Well, Kendall, I think what you would need to do is make a nice card, right, uh, in which you uh, uh, you then reveal the uh, space token. They are a little hard to wrap, it's true. Um, but then again, they're also um, more uh, ecologically friendly. So, you know... Uh, it's kind of a give-and-take situation there. Anyway, so I strongly recommend uh, our space tokens make wonderful gifts. Um, and uh, and don't be afraid. Like, you know, I, I, you'll have noticed that the, you know, the multi-packs of the space tokens are heavily discounted. It would be totally fine if you know other people who are interested in taking space uh, uh, modules to, like, go in together, buy a pack, and distribute them. It's totally cool. I wouldn't mind that at all. Um, but... 
There we are. So, okay. Let us get back into the text uh, because we have much more myth, math, and world building uh, to do today. And what I was really fascinated by here, we've been looking from the beginning, right? You know, on the first day of our discussion here, I've, you know, since the first day of our discussion, or no, on the first day of our discussion, I was saying that within the first few pages, the nature of Middle Earth kind of changed my worldview as far as understanding the last 20 years, uh, really last 15 years of Tolkien's life. Um, it's not a question of him not like rewriting the Silmarillion, he did, and he was working on it, and, we're, and we're, we're watching that, right? It is so cool to see that happening. We have been through, and of course, tonight's assigned reading included a good deal more of, uh, you know, these huge tables of, you know, Tolkien doing uh, these calculations, especially his generational math, right? You know, calculating, combining his math and his world building and trying to uh, trying to, to figure that out. But we've been watching his ideas get increasingly refined uh, as we come through. And what was really fun to me, and we'll see it in a few passages that we'll uh, look at, I think, uh, at the beginning uh, of tonight's session. Um, well, earlier bits of tonight's session. Places where we're basically seeing the payoff for all that math, right? I mean, of course, like, he didn't ever actually mean to publish all of those tables uh, and charts and things. It's really fun to see. It's really fun to see him doing that work. But what sort of matters is the outcome, right? Um, and it's fun to watch him just kind of integrating that um, and seeing his storytelling, right, beginning to kind of incorporate that stuff. Um, so anyway, we will... Um, um, uh, we'll, we'll sort of see this uh, go along here. But all right. Um, we were looking at, remember he, uh, in the, what we were discussing last week was how he was introducing the variable, um, the variations, right, in elvish aging. Um, from the growth years to the, um, what was it, growth years and life years, right? And then, but then he also had that shift from 144 to 1 down to 100 to 1. Um, which he was, which we saw him kind of playtesting against first age circumstances and third age circumstances. Right, there are some things in which it, some places where it, it needs to be able to work in both. If he's not to have to totally rewrite uh, the story. So of course, Miglin, of course, is the major test case. But having sort of solved that, the growth years issue solves the Miglin problem. So no, no, no problems anymore, right? Um, that's um, that's been done. But we have to make sure that the Miglin solution doesn't scuttle the rest of it, right? And so at the very end of last time, we were looking at the fact that things fit pretty well. When it came to Galadriel and Galadriel's age, um, he was fine with that, but he was a little uncomfortable with where that put Arwen, because it put Arwen in her 40s when she got betrothed to Aragorn, and, and so she started looking like she was way older than... I mean, she's thousands of years older than him, but like in life years, he wants them to be pretty close, right? Um, and it wasn't quite working out, so... Here, Tolkien adopts a cunning plan, right? Because there is another factor he can bring into play here, and that is the factor of the half-elven. 
the only way of making Arwen younger at their meeting is this. The half-elven lived at the human rate. Okay, right, so since they're half a, we can, we've got some more wiggle room, or some more conceptual world-building wiggle room, right, because we're talking about the half-elven here. Eärendil was only 39 when he came to Valinor. He was not allowed to return to Middle-earth, but he obtained the grace from Eru via Manwe that his children, being half-elven on both sides, descendants of both Idril and of Luthien, should a. have choice of which kindred they would belong to, and b. should in each kind have a long and fair youth, that is, should only slowly reach maturity, and that this should extend to the second generation, thus Elrond to Arwen and Elros to Vardimir. Now, um, you may have heard me say on many occasions that I strongly dislike this, and I do. Um, uh, nothing Tolkien is going to say here is going to make me hate any more, or no, less. Not going to hate, not going to make, not going to lessen my hatred of the idea of the choice of the half-elven extending to Arwen and her brothers. Um, I think it's a terrible idea, and I am not afraid to say it to Tolkien's face. I would totally do that. I think it's a terrible idea. Um, and in my opinion, what he's gaining by doing that here is uh, way, way too dearly bought. Um, because it is bought, in my opinion, um, on the, uh, uh, it is bought at the cost of myth. Um, I, I, uh, yeah, Kendall, exactly. It is an absurdity to have somebody who can say exactly what you just said. It's been a nice 5,000 years. I think I'll try being human now, right? Anybody who can do that, you've completely, you've undermined the larger world building, right? The whole concept of the two kindreds, uh, of the children of Iluvatar. Not to mention the fact that you have, in doing this, he has decreased the significant of significance of Arwen's choice. It might seem to be accommodating the choice of Arwen, right? Well, of course Arwen gets a choice of uh, kindred. She chooses to be human, right? Yeah, but so did Luthien, right? It's no longer, she can't say anymore, a mine is the choice of Luthien. Baloney! Hers is the choice of Elros in that case, right? In which case, it's just, it's just, it's lesser. It is not the same. It is absolutely not the same. And in my opinion, it takes Arwen down two or three mythic pegs um, to have that done. So I, I dislike it. I don't, you know, I, I, I still don't like it. Uh, and his desire to make this all work within his aging system does not reconcile me to it. So I just want to say that up front. I'm going to stop complaining about that. But I just wanted to say that up front. Um, my headcanon still absolutely excludes the uh, uh, choice of the half-elven being extended to Elrond's children. I find it, I've, I've already explained. <laughs> I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, um, no. So, okay. Um, uh, now, um, but you can see the temptation, right? Now, notice one thing, how he is, on the one hand, going to be um, using this. Uh, he's, 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 he's going to be uh, uh, using this alteration, right? The, the, the half-elven clause, right, in the aging schema in order to reconcile the whole goal, right? As far as I can tell, 100% of the goal. We're going to change the whole system just in order to pull Arwen's life age down a peg, 
right? So that she and Aragorn are peers, right? First of all, can I just say, notice the... I was going to say compulsion, but I think I'll back down and just say drive. Notice the drive towards systemization that marks Tolkien's thinking throughout this, right? He's not okay with just saying, Elven Age, you know, it's kind of different, right? It's just kind of different, and uh, don't worry about it. No. Um, Nor is he willing to make individual exceptions without a rationale. And even when he has a rationale, like the rationale of the half-elven that he's developing here, it's still systematized, right? And notice that it still follows the pattern of systematization that he's already developed, right? Yeah, so he's he's not willing to just make exceptions. He's not willing to... He's not even willing to make radical changes. Again, you'd think, well, the easiest thing to do would just make her born later if you want her younger, right? But no. He doesn't want to change the story that fundamentally he wants to instead change the entire system, right? But it needs to be a consistent system, right? In order to satisfy him. That's, that's, that, that seems perfectly clear, right? He is determined. It can be complicated. It can be variable. Um, but there needs to be a consistent, mappable schema, right? This is clearly... I, I just... It seems to me we are learning something about how Tolkien thinks here, right? Um, I, I don't know how else to sort of um, explain that there. But anyway, okay. But going back to what he's saying here. So, um, a long and fair youth. Each kind should have a long and fair youth. That is, whether you choose elf or whether you choose man, as one of the d- scions of the half-elven, you... Um, um, you have a long and fair youth in the sense that you should only slowly reach maturity. By which he means, like, you stay young for a long time. It doesn't mean it like you're 10 years old forever. Like, it doesn't mean you're an adolescent forever. It just means you have your growth years, right? And then you kick into, I'm young and vigorous and beautiful for a long time, and then I'm going to fall off a cliff if I'm human, um, and I'm going to become invisible if I'm an elf. Um, seems to be um, uh, seems to be the way that he's planning on it uh, on 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 how it's working. Now, Gerald Michael is asking, how much of the calculations would get into a revised story? How would we know, or would Tolkien be the only one who knows? Um, Gerald, I think that Tolkien would be the only one who knows. Um, again, we'll see some examples. We'll see some examples. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily know that he had the cycles of the moon worked out by calendar date for the entirety of the span of the time of the narrative of The Lord of the Rings, right? Um, it, the, the, the narrative doesn't, doesn't betray that. It doesn't scream that, right? Um, but he did. Um, and similarly here, I think it would be the same thing. Uh, my theory, Gerald, is that had he gone on to complete this rewriting on this schema, he would have been tossing out these dates and there would be people who would be like, readers who'd be reading it, who'd be like, where'd that number come from? He's just pulling that number out of a hat, right? When, of course, like we know now that there's like pages and pages and pages of mathematical tables behind it, right? Um, I, that's my suspicion. 
as to what it would actually kind of look like on the surface in the end. Um, but anyway, okay. Um, so they should have a long and fair youth and that it should extend to the second generation. Okay, so tell us what this looks like. To Elrond, it was thus granted that he should return to, he should return towards the ancient growth rate. He reached maturity at 20 life years, only in 1,000 sun years, at a rate of 50 to 1. Wait a second, whoa. It took him 1,000 years to grow up? So Elrond was a bratty teenager for like 400 years? Whoa. Okay, I must have misread this. I didn't get that at all. It was thus granted that he should return towards the ancient growth rate. Um, but that wasn't the ancient growth rate. 50 to 1 wasn't the ancient growth rate. Was it, the, it was 12 to 1, wasn't it? 12 to 1 for growth rate and then 144 to 1 for life rate, and then it diminished to 10 to 1 and 100 to 1 in Middle-earth. Right? I mean... But yeah, I, I mean, he re, re, he achieved, he reached 20 life years only in a thousand sun years. Huh. He was thus 20 in Second Age 1000, minus 58, because he was born 58 years before the beginning of the Second Age, at Second Age 942. When sent by Gilgalad to the war in Eregion, uh 1695, he was there for 20 plus uh, the difference in there divided by 100, because it's a 100 to 1 life year range. So uh, he was 27 and a half life years um, when he went to war in Eregion. That's like basically when he, when he founded Rivendell. Roughly, right? Which is suitable. At the end of the Second Age, he was 20 plus 25 equals 45 life years, and at his wedding in Second Age 100, he was 46, only one year older than Calabrian, see above, which fits well. Elrond, at the end of the Third Age, uh, 3021, was thus about 75 life years in full elvish vigor. So he's checking the math. Does this work for Elrond? Yeah. I guess, if you do the freakish 50 to 1 thing, which I am not going to pretend to understand. Just not going to pretend to understand that. Um, okay, Michael's wondering if returned towards... Yeah, he should return towards the ancient growth rate. So Michael's wondering if that means maybe he's averaging Elrond's pre-choice and post-choice development. Right. Honestly, Michael, it feels to me like he just made a mistake there. Like, like it's a slip. Because I literally cannot remember any time. It's been a long time. It's been a long time since the growth rate was 100 to 1. I don't know. I don't know. Um... Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to move on. Maybe it'll make sense. Maybe it'll, it'll continue to help make sense. Okay, now we come back to Arwen. If Arwen had the same growth rate, 
She was born in third age, 341. Remember, that's a correction. It says 241 in the ta- in the t- in the tale of years. But that's a scribal error, obviously, right? Obviously, a scribal error because there's not even enough time for the gestation. Remember the whole shotgun wedding scandal, right? Um, so the de- the years in which the twins and in uh, that is Eladon and Elro here and Arwen were born in the tale of years, it has to be a scribal error, right? I mean, you know, these things happen. Findigil, come on, man. Um, but um, anyway, so um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so just, well, let's not forget that. Okay. But did not reach maturity, 20 life years, until third age, 1341. In 2951, she was therefore, this is the engagement point, she was therefore 36 life years. In 2980, no wait, 2951, that's when they met. That's the meeting year. In 2980, that's the betrothal year. She was still of much the same age, and Aragorn, by above reckoning, 30. In 3019, at their wedding... She was nearly 37, but Aragorn was 43. Okay, so Aragorn is like 20, and she's 36 when they first meet. And then when they get betrothed, she is all still like 36, and Aragorn's 30. So he's almost caught up with her. And then when they get married, she's 37, and he is 43. So it works um, um, a little better, right? It's a little better. So yes, he's he's aging at three to one, Chris. Because remember, he at first he was like five to two, right? Because he was kind of monkeying with the numbers then. But um, uh, but then remember, he decided that he could solve that problem by doing the same growth year, life year business, right? So Aragorn grows at one to one, right? He looks like a normal kid until he turns 20. And then from age 20, he ages at three to one. So in 20 years, he's 20. That's when he meets Arwen. And then uh, he's aging at three to one after that. So that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, Yeah. Okay. So one uh, little observation I cannot help but make. Oh, sorry, let me finish the paragraph. She then acquired the lifespan of her husband after the birth of Eldarion in 4th Age 1. In 4th Age 100, therefore, Aragorn's death, she was 33 Numenorean life years older, or 70. So she had 37 Elvish life years, right? Then she be, she takes on the lifespan of her husband, 3 to 1, Numenorean time, and she gains 33 more years of that in the 100 years that they are married. And then, so she's 70 years old, life years, um, at the end. Okay. Anyway, so can I just say, for what we've gained, it's totally not worth it, in my opinion. Like, she's still older than him. I mean, she's still 36 life years and he's 20, right? I mean... It's not quite the same as 46 and 20, which I think is the gap that was in the last time he did this math. But it's a little bit of a gain, I guess. I guess it's a little bit of a gain. Um, yeah, now Chris is saying, it begs the question, had they had no children, would she have remained on the elven aging track? Well, you do wonder, Chris, right? I mean, like, is... is Because um, he does explicitly say... After the birth of Eldarion, 
And of course, we should remember the Melian footnote. Remember the Melian footnote? The Melian footnote, which explained that it was the birth of Luthien. That really is what tied Melian to the sort of uh, incarnate situation that she was in, right? And so it was, you know, it was the combination of her marriage to Thingol and her child. When Thingol was killed, her last connection to the incarnate world was severed because Luthien was already dead and got Baxies on that, I realize. But she had still died, right? So, um, anyway, yeah. So, the Melian thing... But, Chris, in turn, the Melian thing also suggests that the, the husband thing matters. It's hard to imagine that she would have carried on blithely at the elvish pace if they hadn't had any children. But he's explicitly linking her shift in aging to the birth of the child. Um... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stephen says, I love all the math, the reasoning behind the math, not so much. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 yeah, again, Stephen, I would say we can just enjoy that, right? Like, enjoy the fact that Tolkien thought this way, right? Tolkien thought, um, uh, he was, he was clearly enjoying the math himself. He wanted to work it out. He wanted something real. Right? Uh, he, no approximates for him. He wanted it to work. Anyway, let's keep going. Eldarion, the kid, was mortal and was not by promise included in the grace of Eärendil. Oh no, the whole half-elven clause is wearing out on him. But he had in fact a long youth, which took the form of remaining like a young man from maturity at twenty until sixty without change. He then lived another sixty-five years, making him 125, but in life age, 60, 20, plus 65 equals 85. His descendants became normal, but long-lived. Okay, so Eldarion, as the whole prolonged life cycle thing is wearing off in the first generation, is transitioning in the first generation back to normal human scale, right? So Eldarion's kids age, grow, age everything at the normal human rate, which seems radical and strange at this point, of one year equals one year, right? So, Kendall, no, it's not that he woke up on his 60th birthday and had all gray hairs. What happened was, at his 60th birthday, um, he started to age again. So his body clock paused for 40 years. Between age 20 and 60, he didn't change. It didn't change at all. It doesn't even count notice when he's calculating his lifespan. Right? He lives 65 years. So at the age of 61, he looks 21. At the age of 70, he looks 30. Right? You see, that's, that's I'm pretty sure, how this is going here. He's not living three to one. He's just, like, got the pause button hit. Um, yeah, that's my understanding of what this means. That's weird. I don't get it. I, I mean, okay, I get the fact that Elda he wants to make Eldarion a, um, 
a sort of transitional state, right? And so qua transitional state, he's not going to be quite like either side, right? He's not going to be like the full human children that he's having, nor is he going to be quite like either one of his admittedly weird and aberrant parents um, in a good way, obviously. Um, but um, so he's going to be different, and that's pretty different. What strikes me as strange about it is... Um, uh, what strikes me as strange about it is that he's um, it, there's that there's no precedent for that pattern. Like nobody hits the pause button. Even the elves don't hit the pause button, right? I mean, they may be aging at one forty-four to one, which from a human perspective will look like hitting the pause button, but they're not hitting the pause button. Whereas apparently Eldarion just goes into aging stasis alone. Of like all people ever to live in the history of Middle Earth, Eldarion alone has his life cycle completely paused. Um, yeah. So, I don't know. And you're right, Chris, the math doesn't really seem to... work there. No, it does. It does. Yeah, he's 85 life years when he dies. It's been 125 years of the sun, but 40 of those years just didn't count. They just don't count. It's not happening at a different ratio. They just, you just subtract them. You just subtract them. Um, what about his sisters, Edith? No idea. I can only assume the same must have happened with them. Um, I mean, they're not in the genealogy, so, you know, uh, we don't have their ages to reckon with, uh, so we can say whatever we want about them. But, um, uh, but yeah, so I think it's, it's, the math doesn't check, Chris, if we apply like Numenorean math to it, but we're not applying Numenorean math. His life years are one to one, except for those 20 in which the aging pause button, uh, was hit. Um, <laughs> yes, Stephen says, so on the other hand, after he's been working for 40 years, he's still no closer to retirement than he was when he started. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, Michelle, Aragorn might not have really changed outwardly, but he was still aging, right? That's why we're doing that calculation with Arwen. He's aging at three to one. So it doesn't look like much time has passed. So when Aragorn is 50 sun years old, right? 50 sun years after he was born. What is Aragorn? What is Aragorn's life age? Well, math quiz here. Aragorn looks and feels what? 30. 20, right? The first 20 are one to one. And then it's three to one after that. So it isn't that he totally doesn't change at all. Right? I mean, by the time he's 88, he looks 43. You know, older, but not 88. Right? He looks way younger than he actually is. But he's still aging all the way through. Unlike his son, who is just in aging stasis. Yeah. Okay. Um, yes, Kendall, I agree. That would have been a little hard on his wife. I have to admit. 
um, that he still looks 20 at age 65 when his wife is 65, right? Um, just plain, straight up 65. I'm not 100% sure that that's a, an enormous blessing, honestly, the lifespan of Eldarion there. Um, I'm not sure I would want that lifespan, at least not if I was the only one who had that. But, um, yes. Okay. Um, so, it's weird. It's weird. Um, I do have to say, the one thing I will say in favor of the new half-elf schema, and it's not much, but it is kind of fun to think of Arendel driving a super hard bargain with Manway, right? Where Manway is kind of laying out what's going to happen, and Arendel's like, all right, no, 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 no. This is what we're going to do, right? Not only my kids, but my grandkids, right? Nope, final offer. Final offer, I'm not going to drive your shiny boat. I'm sorry, right? Um, I, I, I like it. I kind of like it, um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Christopher says it would ensure we'd get through exploring the Lord of the Rings. Oh, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. I don't need to hit the pause button for 20 years. It's all going to be good. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, Michael, you're right that he does need some kind of schema to account for Arendel anyway. Um, you're right, he doesn't have 256 years to grow up, marry Elwing, father twins, and sail to Valinor. Yep, no, you're right. Um, that... That the half-elven would proceed on some kind of different schedule seems to me totally legit. That that schedule should have... I mean, again, since schedules are what we're doing, since we insist on having a consistent schema, right, um, that it should be different makes sense to me. I I have no manner of objection. Um, It's the extending it to the third generation that I completely oppose with every fiber of my being. Um, anyway, okay, all right, let's keep going. Now, here we get to some of the examples of, no, so Chris, Tuor and Idril, he was working on Tuor, Tuor and Idril. He made that work out so that they were, remember he was monkeying with, now you also remember I was finding mathematical errors he was making in his Idril calculations, I think it was last time, but, um, uh, but anyway, he was calculating when Idril would have to be born. He was calculating, again, incorrectly, but he was calculating that if she was born, like, right before they left, she was young, you know, when they left, um, uh, when they left Valinor, uh, that she would be right around, like, 20 life years, you know, 20, early 20s life years when Tour comes along. Um, so uh, they would have been... There. Yeah. Um, oh, how Idril fits into the change to mortal scheme? Oh, yeah. No clue. No clue. Fortunately, that all happened on board the ship, right? So, um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> who knows? Um, yeah, there's not much... Chris, I don't think I see much, many plot problems... Um, with um, many plot problems with um, Tuor and Idril. Like, 
Yeah, Idril's aging is going to have to change too. Like she presumably goes to human years, which are not yet Numenorean years, right? So how does that work, and how does does Tuar change at all, or is it just her? And how does that work? On the one hand, yes, something post marriage would have to be worked out for them. But on the other hand, I don't. I think we've not seen him do that, Chris, because like it doesn't matter, you know. Like, yeah, Erindo has to get born, but that's all that has to happen. And he's already been born. He's born pretty quickly, right? So once Arendel is born, the ages of Tuor and Idril, nobody cares. Nobody cares. They don't even die of old age, right? They sail off into the distance and then who knows. So um, the two of them could be getting old at almost any rate they wanted to, right? It, it's human rate, elvish rate. Um, uh, it doesn't matter. You know, what happens on board the ship stays on board the ship, I guess. Um, now, Chris, I... And I have no question that, uh, you know, I don't think that either one of us can vie with Tolkien and completionism. But, um, at least not where it comes to these things, I have no doubt that he would have worked it out intimately. Um, he's just not had a need right now. What he's doing right now is, again, he's playtesting, right? He wants to, he's trying to work, he's trying to finalize the schema so that he can now apply it consistently across the whole narrative from Quivian and onwards. Right? That's what he's got to do. Or that's what he feels like he has to do. Right? That's what he wants to do. Um, So he's looking at the test cases. Right? We got to make sure this works for um, Idril and Tuor pre marriage. We've got to make sure this works for Maeglin. We've got to make sure this works for. um, uh, Remember, he was thinking about um, uh, Turin and Finduilus. Right? There's there's another test case that has to work out. Um, It has to work with um, Galadriel and Elrond and Arwen, right? These are the, those are the critical cases where if the aging schema falls apart, the story is going to become absurd, right? But if those things can all check out, then he can proceed. He can go, now he can begin to rewrite the stories, right? Um, uh, so, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, all right, so... Let's do it again. The story of the Quendi. But this time with the benefit of math. Concerning the Quendi in their mode of life and growth, especially as compared with men. Now, first let us observe, we have a title here, right? That's interesting. That's important. We have a title here. This would appear to be an actual production here. Now, Concerning the Quendi and their mode of life and growth is not an enormously exciting title. Um, this kind of sounds like a, this text is not parallel to, uh, you know, the uh, the Annals of Amon or something like that. But it is parallel to um, the life and customs among the Eldar, or the laws and customs among the Eldar. Sorry, I'm thinking about life so much. Uh, laws and custom among the Eldar. So yeah, appendix territory. Michael is, I think, exactly what he's what he's thinking here, right? So, but he does seem to be packaging this as if for presentation to a reading audience, right? So this is going to be an appendix, probably a Silmarillion appendix, is my guess, as to what he's imagining here with concerning the Quendi and their mode of life and growth. But notice again, as we've noticed before, that he still is 100% insistent upon, especially as compared with men. And we'll come back to that. Okay. Okay. 
When the Quendi were young in Arda, during their earliest generations, before the Great March, and especially in the first six generations after their awakening, they were far more like men. Their Hroar, bodies, were in great vigor and dominant, and the delights of the body of all kinds were their chief concern. Their Fear, spirits, were only beginning to wake fully and to grow in knowledge of their latent powers and of their preeminence. Thus, as was indeed at first necessary and so ordained for them, they were in their early generations far more concerned with love and the beginning of children than was so later. Moreover, the engendering of children was then less costly to their vigor or youth. Notice that's a reversal. He was saying the opposite before. He was saying that in the early generations, um, more of their vigor was expended. He, was, he, he came up with that when he was trying to explain why the first generation were so lame, right? why, why, they, weren't, um, why they weren't the ambassadors. He was like, well, they're tuckered out right, from all the begetting. Um, they, um, um, they expended more of their vigor uh, in, uh, in childbearing. So, you know, um, okay. But now he's reversed that. Like, no, no, no. They, it was less costly back then. Cause again, they're, I mean, when they first woke up, man, their Hoar were, uh, just, um, full of pep, right? Okay. It was not that their natural lifespan, their sp- natural span of growth and life was different, but that in their early days, they used it differently. The natural life of the Quendi was to grow quickly, according to their kind, to bodily maturity. Like, not, we wouldn't call it, like, 10 to 1 is still, you know, growing, uh, growing to maturity in 200 years, we wouldn't call quick, right? But according to their kind, they grow quickly to bodily maturity. And then to endure in full vigor for many years, until the motions and desires of their fear became dominant and their hroar waned. Okay, so that's what old age looks like for the elves, right? When they get to parallel with geriatric humans, right? When their life years begin to get what would be in humans, geriatric years, then their fear become dominant in their hroar wind. The Quindian growth and life may be compared with that of men, so long as it is remembered that A, its rate of expenditure was far slower than the human, especially after achievement of maturity, and B, that when the Quendi spoke of their bodies waning, it did not mean that these bodies became decrepit or that they felt the oncoming of senility or death. Okay, first of all, again, notice how he's going over here a lot of ground that he's already covered. I think, again, that to me is more evidence that this is him taking the brainstorming that we've been reading. Right, a lot of what we've been reading has just been him brainstorming, and now he's trying to package it up. This is why we're going to see later in this chapter. This is chapter twelve. Later in chapter twelve, we're going to see him going through and explaining, often in exactly the same words or with many of the same words, the things about. Remember the um, uh, the uh, the time flies when you're having fun principle, right? About how even though elves are like the reason that, you know, they're, they're not like moving through time like tortoises. Remember all that? You'll recall that in chapter 12 here, he, he's going to do all of that stuff again, right? Almost not quite word for word, but very, very closely paraphrasing, right? And again, that to me shows he liked that stuff, right? He felt like he'd worked that out pretty well. And so he's going to put it in. This is now being dressed up like for an appendix. Okay, fine. Um, uh, yes. 
Stephen says, I can't help but think that there that maybe there's a fundamental problem with the very idea of needing to make men man equivalents of everything Elvin. Stephen, I 100% agree. But um, all we can see is that that tendency has not only persisted from the very, very beginning of what we've been reading in this book, but it's been getting more and more pronounced. Remember what happened when he first started doing the life equivalencies thing? Remember how he was saying... It was right back at the beginning when he was working on gestation and, 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 and the time of the children and all that stuff, right? He was working all that stuff out, and he was saying, the life of the elves is parallel to humans up to a point, right? Up to a point. But then remember how the gap between them got wider and wider as humans started to get old and elves were just starting to move into their prime, right? Um, so he he was... He was saying, like, these two curves are, are they, they have a very similar shape, right? The scale is different, but the shape of the curve is very similar in the beginning. Growth, maturity, wedding and childbearing, but then it differs, right? Then from then on, it, 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 the shape is very different. Remember how he was saying that before? Um, not now. Not now. Now he's saying the shape is the same. The manifestation is different. The manifestation is different. Um, but it's... It's, it's a similar pattern. The Hroar is now waning. They're not just hitting their stride when they hit life age 100, which is what he said earlier on. Now, when, if they hit life age 100... It's time to go, right? I mean, the, their Hroar is kicked at that point, right? It is time for, you know, the Fear has become dominant, right? They're totally doing the Marty McFly if they haven't by then. Sorry, Back to the Future reference. Increasingly old movie, I know. Um, the whole fading thing, invisibility, fading into invisibility. Um, but um, but note, note the two provisos that he gives here, Right? Um, he says it's okay to compare the growth in life, so like the, the overall, again, like the overall shape of the curve of the lifespan of an elf, it's okay to compare that with men if we remember two things, and those two things are its rate of expenditure was far slower than the human, especially after achievement of maturity. So just like, don't forget that although... If you plot in life years, the shape is the same. It's not going to really look the same because the scale is going to be so much different and the scale changes, right? Humans continue to grow in a one-year-to-one-year ratio, right, Um, in this pre-Numenorian world. Um, Whereas the elves have one one scale in their growth years and another scale in their life years. So we've got to remember that. Second, that when the Quendi spoke of their bodies waning... They did not mean that these became decrepit or that they felt the oncoming of senility and death. So don't think. Um, uh, so don't, <laughs> that's exactly right, Chad. <laughs> Froar, where we're going, we don't need Froar. Exactly. That is that is that is perfect. Um, uh, that is perfect. Well, talk about your uh, your your niche T-shirt ideas, right? Um, <laughs> Anyway, um, okay, okay. 
Um, uh, when the Quendi spoke of their bodies waning, it did not mean that these became decrepit or that they felt the oncoming of senility or death. The shape of the curve is still the same. They are coming to the end of the life of their Hroar, still. But don't imagine elderly, wizened, white-haired, uh, arthritic elves. That's not how it works. Um, there's no decrepitude, senility, or death, or anticipation of death involved. Um, okay. Okay. Um, let's keep going. Other special expenditures, such as grief, long and arduous travel, great craft labors, and especially the bodily recovery from grave wounds and hurts, might also hasten the waning. It is said that the dreadful year, one yen, of the journey of the exiles from Valinor, over the grinding ice, to Beleriand, affected those of the Noldor who en endured it as greatly as three normal life years. He's upped it. It was two in uh, some earlier draftings, but putting it down into solid prose here, he's going with three. But these expenditures are not as they are not either in reckoning human ages, sorry, as they are not either in reckoning human ages, taken into account in computing the age of any given elf. As we may say that two men are both sixty years old, though one may be weaker or more worn than the other, so of the Quendi we may give their ages in Olmendi and Koimendi and take no account of the chances of their lives. In other words, the kind of accelerated life expenditure, that happens. Grief, long and arduous travel, you know, you, 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 you know, grief, long and arduous travel, great craft labors, and the bodily recover from grave wounds and hurts, all of which probably came into a, into a, a play, right, during the crossing of the Helcaraxa. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah, so that's, um, those things, it doesn't change the math. What it is going to do, though, is it's going to accelerate the end, right? If you've had a hard life, if you're an elf who's had a hard life, grief, travel, craft labors, uh, recovery from grave wounds and hurts, then your rower is probably not going to, it's, it's probably going to, going to give out sooner, right? Um, it's going to, it's going to start fading sooner than somebody else's would. So it's, it doesn't change your age, but, you know, functionally, if we want to think about how long, you know, this self is going to be around, um, you know, if you're prognosticating, you know, if you're looking at your watch and wondering, like, any century now, that guy's heading for the havens. I wonder when it's going to be. you got to take into account um, these um, uh, special expenditures. Exactly, Devor. It's not the years, it's the mileage. That's it. That's it. Um, that's exactly it when it comes to the Alps. Um, okay. So, um, notice one thing that he just rolls off there. Right. Notice one way in which he's already kind of naturalized the whole, like, the growth years work at this ratio and the life years work at this other ratio. He's given them names, right? Olmendi and Koimendi. The elves think about their time of growth and their time of living after they've grown, right? And they have different words for that. And they think about their ages in 
Olmendi and Koimendi, and they add those together, right? Um, so they're aware of the fact that their life cycle kind of changes there as compared to humans. But, um, uh, but now they, um, uh, now we have elvish words to express that, right? Um, we'll see Bricktail's a little bit more about those words and what they mean as we move forward. After a childbirth, a time of repose was always taken, and this again tended to increase in length. This time, being concerned mainly with bodily refreshment, was reckoned in growth years, or olmendi. It was seldom less than one olmen, or twelve loar, but it might be much more. And usually, but not necessarily, it was progressively increased after each birth of a continuous analume, that is, time of the children, in such series as loar 12, 18, 24, 30, 36, or often 12, 24, 36, 48, 60, so increasing in sixes, or increasing in 12 loar, or in the case of smaller families, 12, 30, 48, 66, that is, increasing in increments of 18 after 12. But these series were only averages, or formulated examples. In practice, the intervals were more variable. They normally occupied some exact number of loar, since conception, and therefore birth, nine loar later, was nearly always in spring. But they were not necessarily in exact twelves or sixes, nor in regular progression. A completed generation, or onolume, of six children could thus in theory occupy a minimum 114 loar, that is, six times nine gestations, plus five times twelve intervals. So nine years, nine loar of nine loar worth of gestation total, right? Six pregnancies at nine loar each, and five intervals at twelve loar each. This was naturally rare. So that's that's the theoretical minimum. This was naturally rare. At theoretic maximum, it might occupy the whole time between maturity of the mother, eighteen, to the uh, to the end of her youth, ninety, or seventy-two yeni i.e. 10,368 loar. But this never occurred. Okay. Um, all right. Yeah, Kendall, I also wonder how having twins affects it. My guess, now remember, twins are very unusual. Um, we only have a couple examples of twins. Um, uh, Elrond and Elros, of course, as, and then Elodon and Elro here a couple generations later. Um, well, one generation later. Uh, but also the last two sons of Fanor uh, were twins as well. Um, yeah, yeah, okay. Notice how... He, now, he's not yet doing it in narrative, right? So we're not yet seeing the full thing. But this is his first shot. Well... Among his early shots, perhaps I should say, uh, at explaining this to the general public, right? Um, here's where he's talking about in this same context, um, that is the same, like, I'm writing a new appendix context, described their fallenness. This is a, a thing we've been tracking at various points, him trying to explain what it means 
for the elves to be very capable of doing wrong, but not inclined to do wrong automatically. Um, and uh, yeah, I, JTMS, I don't know, I don't know exactly how to articulate that, but anyway, you, Jocelyn, it's you. Okay. Jocelyn. Great. Um, uh, Jocelyn, he is explaining it. I'm pretty sure he's explaining it to the general public. Um, rather than creating the backstory for himself. We've seen him creating the backstory, right? But the reason I think he's doing it for the general public is that, the title, right? Concerning the Quendi and their mode of life and growth, especially as compared with men. Um, he's, he's, he's given it a heading and a title, and he's also revising and repeating what he did before. Not like he's just taking up the same question again and thinking it through anew. We've seen him do that, too. Um, but in, in this, the sense that I get is that he's definitely packaging this now or beginning to package this. Okay. Um, so here's him packaging up the fallenness question, but they never, not even the wrongdoers rejected Eru nor worshiped either Melkor nor, or Sauron as a God, neither individually or as a whole people. Their lives, therefore, came under no general curse or diminishment and their primeval and natural lifespan as a race, by doom coextensive with the remainder of the life of Arda, remained unchanged in all their varieties. Of course, the Quendi could be terrorized and daunted. In the remote past before the finding, or in the dark years of the Avari, after the departure of the Eldar, or in the histories of the Silmarillion, they could be deceived, and they could be captured and tormented and enslaved. Then, under force and fear, they might do the will of Melkor or Sauron, and even commit grave wrongs. But they did so as slaves, who nonetheless in heart knew and never rejected the truth. There is no record of any elf ever doing more than carrying out Melkor's orders under fear or compulsion. None ever called him master or lord, or did any evil act uncommanded to obtain his favor. Thus, though the carrying out of evil commands, quite apart from the sufferings of slavery and torment, clearly exhausted the youth and life vigor of those unfortunate elves who came under the power of the shadow, this evil and diminishment was not heritable. Okay. Okay. Um, complicated, right? Complicated. Um, uh, so anyway, oh, Timothy, the answer to the question you asked a while back, um, how do elves know when they've changed from growth years to life years? Apparently they can. They have the different names for it, we're told. So apparently they, they do feel the change. They do feel the difference. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Does this help? I think it moves us forward a bit. Um, remember that last time he was talking about this when he was writing notes for himself, he was saying things like, um, none of the elves ever really followed Melkor. And it seemed a little dubious, right? Notice how he is, the, the, the difference that he's making. He's not saying, no, obviously not saying no elves ever did anything wrong. Again, they could do wrong things. Um, but there's a line that no elf ever crossed. And the line that they never crossed is worshipping Melkor or Sauron as a god, either individually or as a whole people. They never did it. They never did it. They might have submitted to him. They 
commit they committed grave wrongs, right? They did horrible. There's there are many elves that did horrible things, but none of them aligned themselves with Melkor or Sauron. None of them worshipped them as gods. Um, that parenthesis seems to me really important. There is no record of any elf ever doing more than carrying out Melkor's orders under fear or compulsion. None ever called him master or lord or did any evil act uncommanded to obtain his favor. So, does this pass the Feanor test? Absolutely this passes the Feanor test. Feanor, wrongdoer, committing grave wrongs, absolutely, right? Um, but did he ever worship Melkor? Did he ever do any evil act uncommanded to obtain Melkor's favor? No. No. Clearly not. Right. Clearly not. Uh, he was against Melkor all along. He believed that he was fighting. Now, he was deceived. He did horrible things. He was delusional in other ways, right? Um, in the role that he believed that he you know, could or was meant to play um, in taking down Melkor. Um, but he did not cross this line. Obviously, Feanor did not cross this line um, of calling Melkor master or lord or doing any evil act uncommanded to obtain his favor. How about the Maeglin test? Does it pass the Maeglin test? I mean, when we're thinking of villainous elves, those, it seemed to me, are the two critical tests, right? Does it pass the Maeglin test? Yeah. In fact, I rather think he has Maeglin in mind when he's writing some of this. Um... about the being captured and tormented and enslaved part, then under force and fear, they might do the will of Melkor or Sauron? Yeah. Yeah, under force and fear, Maeglin did the will of Melkor or Sauron and even commit grave wrongs. It doesn't justify him, right? It doesn't wipe out Maeglin's treachery. That was still very bad for him to do, right? He was, he was very wrong to betray Gondolin. But he didn't, according to Tolkien here, cross this line. He never rejected the truth. He never called Melkor master or lord or did any evil act uncommanded to obtain his favor. Um, now, compared to older stories, James, yes, I agree. Maeglin was much more villainous in older stories. Um... Yes, the spell of bottomless dread that we see, um, especially in the Book of Lost Tales, is again the fear and compulsion kind of thing that Tolkien is talking about here, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Now, so okay, Mary wants to apply the Aeol test. Does it pass the Aeol test? Well, yeah. I mean, he doesn't worship Melkor, right? Um, but let me say two things about this. First, John, in response to your question, 
And then Mary, I'm gonna I'm not totally dodging the ale question, as you'll see, but I'm kind of for now dodging the ale question. <laughs> um, John. He uh, John says so he's emphatically saying here that orcs are not elves because it sounds like it. Yes, I think so. I think so. I think that he is. Um, uh, now it's again possible that in, when talking about elves being captured, tormented, and enslaved, it's possible that he is compat that that's compatible with the orcification of the elves that were captured, right? But remember, from Morgoth's ring, the further he got along his thinking about orcs, the less he seemed to like the elf, the kidnapped elves idea. Um, so I tend to think, and well, okay, but John, then coming back to what I think you were probably pointing to, um, the evil and diminishment, like elves who do evil, wrongdoers, um, those who commit grave wrongs, um, those who submit to the will of Melkor or Sauron under f torment, fear, and uh, enslavement are certainly going to have their life years diminished. They're going to be expending their youth like nobody's business, right? Uh, lots of mileage, though not so many years, Devora. Uh, on those elves, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that their doom overall has changed. They're not going to become mortal or something as a result of this. So it's not heritable. So John, his statement about the evil and diminishment not being heritable seems to me to slam the door on elves as orcs. It really does. Because um, if the evil is not heritable then no matter what Melkor did to the first generation, no matter what hideous torment and enslavement he subjected them to post-capture, um, it wouldn't be heritable. It wouldn't be heritable. The children would still be born elves, and he'd have to do it with every single generation, afresh, right? And it's pretty clear that that's not the orc situation. So yes, John, I think his insistence on the non-heritability of the evil consequences or the evil circumstances of elves who have done evil is um, uh, does seem to me to knock the bottom out of the possibility of orcs as corrupted elves. Now, Mary, I'm going to circle back to Aeol. I'm going to say the other thing that I was going to say about this passage, which is that I find it very unsatisfactory theologically speaking. Um, I cannot help but say that this feels to me like letting the elves off on a technicality. Um, I said it passes the Maiguin test, and it kind of does, crudely speaking, right? Yes, he told Melkor about the ways into Gondolin under torture. Sure. Sure. Um, but what about when he gets back? And what about before? Right? What about the crookedness of his desire in the first place? The fact is, his heart is just not in the right place. 
um, he comes back and becomes a, a, a willing collaborator. I mean, he becomes a collaborator. Yeah, yeah. He, again, he agreed in, the con, in like under fear and torment. Absolutely. They might have wrung the truth out of him about how to get into Gondolin. But did anybody make him try to, like, kidnap Idril and, you know, chuck Arendo off the wall of Gondolin? Like, did, was Melkor there torturing him into that at the time? Now, again, you can say, you could say, Spell of Bottomless Dread. Well, okay, maybe. Um, maybe, but I don't think so. Because it's very much in line with what he was before he left as well. I mean, he wasn't making good choices beforehand. Um, he had his very bad experience, and then he continues making really bad choices afterwards. There's too much of a, um, there's too much of a consistency there. And Mary, this is when I come back to Ale. Ale is what Ale does is evil. I mean, his attempt to dominate his wife, his kidnapping and domination of his wife. I mean, talk about daunting and terrorizing. Now I know it's not said that she was wholly unwilling. Um, but uh, it goes beyond creepy, what he does to her. And his attempt to imprison her, he is clearly, at the very least, um, emotionally abusive to her after the fact. Confining her, right? Uh, I, you know, not you know, not letting her see her family. I mean, like, he is not... A good person, Ale is right. Even before he gets to Gondolin and starts really acting out and attempting to murder folks, right? Which he does do, right? Um, um, actually, does kill Aravel, though she wasn't his target, uh, and was attempting to kill his son. This, this is, this is bad, right? This is, um, these are bad looks, right? This is, this is, that's moral wrongness. They're, 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 yes, they're committing... These are not isolated grave wrongs, right? Aeol is a bad person. He's just, he's just... he's He is not good. And it has nothing to do... He was never captured, tormented, and enslaved by Morgoth, right? He did that to himself. Even Feanor was, like, potentially deceived and corrupted by contact with Melkor. Melkor might have worked on him in some way. Right, that seems to be the suggestion of Manway weeping for the marring of Feanor. But who marred Ale? Right, who marred Maeglin? Apart from Ale, right? Um, before he got captured in the first place. Um, but um, so yeah, I don't. I'm not saying I disagree with anything that Tolkien says in this in this paragraph, right? Because um, you're right, Michael. I mean, Tolkien's out would be that, yeah, Aeol, like, he was not a nice guy. But he never actually rejected Eru as the creator. He didn't actually worship Melkor. So, so what? So that's okay, right? Um, I find that unsatisfactory because nobody would apply that scale to, like, contemporary human life. Right? As long as you don't actually explicitly worship Satan, you're fine. It, it, it doesn't really matter. Right? Um, you know, you can, like, torment children and, like, 
you know, become a cannibal and, and everything else you want to do, right? But, you know, you're not actually explicitly worshipping Satan himself there. So, you know, um, so it's fine. I, I guess just that that's not that's not what depravity is. That's not, like, that's not how morality works. Like, it's not a it's not about, like, at the end of the day, where is your ultimate allegiance? Is it to Melkor or is it to Eru? Um, that's not the primary problem in morality, right? Um, humans aren't bad because they worshipped Satan. Even in the Bible, like, even in Genesis, that's not what happens, right? The fall of man involves turning away from God towards self, Right? Um, that the fruit to see that the fruit is desi- is good to eat and desirable to make one wise, right? Um, it's the idolatry of the self that is clearly, um, you know, in the Christian Christian and Catholic tradition, what is at the core of immorality of the whole fallenness question with humans. Um, so that's why this feels really weak to me. Um, because, and then why I don't really buy it, buy it. Yeah. Uh, um, exactly. If you do the works of Melkor, you're worshiping him. Sort of Mary. Yeah. I mean, again, it's at the end of the day, I don't think that that's what it's all about. Um, uh, in the end, like, I just, I, I don't think, I think that identifying reverence of Melkor as a God as like that's where the line in the sand gets drawn. You cross that line, curtains, right? But so long, so long as you don't go there, it's fine. It's just I just that that just does not seem to me um, to be uh, um, uh, in other places, especially in Morgoth's Ring when we saw Tolkien wrestling with theological questions, the terms in which he was wrestling, the terms in which he was expressing things, were still fundamentally consistent with the Catholic tradition. This doesn't feel that way. This feels like a kind of um, uh, a kind of special pleading, you know? Um, Like he's... So... I guess my answer to my own answer to my question that I asked, does this help us to understand elven, elvish fallenness? No, this doesn't help me at all. Um, and having now understood this passage better, I'm going to go about forgetting about it. <laughs> That's not true. Um, again, I just, I just don't think it works. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, It's possible, Michael. It's possible that with a soul tied to Middle-earth that cannot be returned to its maker or sent away to hell, there has to be a difference in how it's handled. Uh, Mandos's terms are more important, possibly. I mean, is, is that like... So, Michael, you're kind of suggesting this is like Mandos house rules for elves, right? Um... On the one hand, 
it's not that I, I can't get behind the idea of Mando's having house rules, right? I mean, sure. Um, and the terms aren't going to be necessarily the same, but what he's talking about here is not about something the Valar do. It's not about Mando's. It's about my understanding of what he is setting out to accomplish in this paragraph is to explain why there was a fundamental change in the doom of humans and there was not a fundamental change in the doom of elves. That's why he talks is talking about heritability. That's why it's that's what it comes down to at the end, right? You as an elf can make bad choices and you can mess yourself up. And presumably, Michael, that you gotta take up with Mandos. Right? He's gonna have his own house rules for how that gets coped with. Right? So Feanor, accompanied by his boatload of issues, comes to Mandos and Mandos is like, okay, house rules, time to sort through this. Right? Sure. That I can totally get behind. Right? But what he's talking about here is them and Eru. Why human, the fate of humans changed. Why death entered the picture. Fall man, we're talking about, right? But a similar heritable change has not happened among the elves. Whereas, again, original sin is heritable, right? So again, Mandos can do any number of things, including forbidding the return, right? Um, but again, that's about... That's between Mandos and the individual. That person, that elf, right? What he's talking about here is an alteration of the doom of the species as the human doom was altered. <laughs> yeah, as... Senalisha says, Andreth is so salty about this. Yes, yes, she is. Yes, she is. Um, okay. Rachel asks, do elves even count their ages once they're grown up? This, in my mind, Rachel, is where the weakness of the comparing to humans system lies is that it almost seems like the elves must themselves be comparing themselves to humans for them to be counting in that same way, right? But I think the answer is, yes, they count. They, they, they're thinking in terms of, of, what was it, Koimendi, right? Um, but... Um, They're counting their own sort of march towards the end of their Hoar, right? Um, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, we'll come back to that. This passage blew my mind. Blew my mind. It appears that in Amman, the Quendi were little affected in their modes of growth. Olmie, and life, Koivie. So, uh, Bruce, you seeing it here, right? Olmie means growth, and Koivie means life. 
Um, so Olmendi are years of growth and Koivendi are years of life. Okay. It appears that in Amman, the Quendi were little affected in their modes of growth, Olmie, and life, Koivie. How was that so? In Amman, the Valar maintained all things in bliss and health, and corporeal living things, such as plants and beasts, appear to have aged or changed no quicker than Arda itself. Time works differently in Amman, right? And we've seen this spoken of in several places. Even the um, plants and beasts in Amman age differently than they do in Middle-earth. Um, a year to them was a valiant year, but even its passage brought them no nearer to death, or not visibly and appreciably, not until the end of Arda itself would the withering appear, or so it is said. But it seems that there was no general law of time governing all things in Amman. There's no system in Amman. You can't calculate the lifespan of a blade of grass or a lifespan of a tree, you know, normal tree, in Amman, right? Um, you can't calculate it based on a formula. No math. Okay, there's no law, general law of time. Each living thing, individually, and not only each kind or variety of living things... Oh, wait, let me do that again. Each living thing, individually, and not only each kind or variety of living things, was under the care of the Valar and their attendant Maiar. Each was maintained in some form of beauty or use for the Valar and for one another. This plant might be allowed to ripen in seed, and that plant be maintained in blossom. This beast might walk in the strength and freedom of its youth. Another might find a mate and bring up its young. Okay. Do you see where my mind is blown? Is your mind blown by this? Right? The Valar, each living thing, individually, and not only each kind or variety of living things. So the Valar don't just say, okay, in Amman, this is how we want the life cycle of oak trees to be, right? This is how the oak trees of Amman are going are gonna to work. No. They take thought for every single oak tree. Every oak and every acorn in Amman is individually attended to and planned. Each living thing is under the care of the Valar and their attendant Maiar. Every buttercup, every blade of grass, every ladybug, right? Every aphid is under the care of the Valar and their attendant Maiar. Okay. Okay. Um, this plant might be allowed to ripen to seed, and that plant be maintained in blossom. So again, there's no, there's no rules. There's no life cycle of any living thing. The Valar micromanage every 
living creature in a moth. So you are going to bloom with flowers perpetually. Forget the life cycle of plants, right? Whereas over there, we want things to ripen to seed, right? So like we, we want crops. So those plants we're going to have, not just that species mind, right? But those individual, you know, wheat seeds, we are going to have them grow and bear seed themselves, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But wait, there's a footnote at the end of, and another might find a mate and bring up its young. And of course, since Amon was limited, some things must pass away, while a perennial balance of the whole was maintained. But this was not confused with death. I love that last sentence. Tarlonio, yeah. Tarlonio says, Valinor, the farming sim. Yeah, imagine doing a farming sim that way. Right, where you have uh, you have to take control of every individual organism involved. Um, yeah, likely about says as a gardener, I like this a lot. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, this is exactly uh, how you want things, right? You know, you know who else would like this? You know who would love Valinor? The ant wives. They'd be all over this, right? Absolutely, all over this. Um, I couldn't get my mind around this at all until I remembered that passage in the I think it's in the Valaquenta um, that talked about not just the magnitude of the Valar but their terrible sharpness um, as if one takes the entirety of Arda as the base of a pillar and then um, you know ex uh, extends it until it's the tip is more bitter than a needle right um, in other words they don't just have big power to do big things they are very capable of micromanaging. So, okay. Okay. Um, uh, and yes, Kendall, this is enormously different from Tom Bombadil's approach um, to the Old Forest. Yeah, absolutely. Each living thing clearly does not belong to itself, as far as the Valar are concerned. In Valinor, mind. This is in Amman. They are not micromanaging Middle-earth to the same extent. Um, and this... Uh, yeah, Jacob Williams was... Um, he wrote me an email thinking about that when we were talking before about the whole diminishment of you know the 144 to 1 to the 100 to 1 in Middle-earth and why, why, why would it happen that way. And uh, he was kind of talking about how it actually does make sense if we think about it in terms of primarily that second explanation of it's the positive influence of the Valar, right? If they have um, gathered themselves, they are, remember, they are like the Fear of the world, right? Arda is like their Hroa, uh, their Hroar. Um, and they have collected themselves. They have focused themselves in Arda, which means Arda, the physical Arda, is itself pretty much unmarred, but that means they've displaced themselves from the rest of Middle-earth um, in order to concentrate there. And they've kind of given it over to Melkor. And so the marring is more pronounced in Middle-earth. So Orome is walking with a little halo of uh, 
unfallenness around him, right? A little, a little halo of, um, of, of unmarring. Well, yeah, a halo of unmarring. So if you stick with Orame and you go back to Valinor, you got 144 to one for life. Um, you know, or at least until you vanish. Um, but, but when you go, when you stay in Middle Earth, where the power of the, from which the power of the Valar has been to an extent at least, um, uh, withdrawn, then it drops to 100 to 1. Seems to me to track. But, um, anyway, <clears throat> okay. Um, But this was not confused with death. So, um, some of you were saying that, like, the, you know, the, the, they have to control the animals and plants and stuff or else, like, our, you know, Amon is going to be overrun with bunnies or something like that. Um, no. No, it wouldn't. First of all, because they only have, you know, bunny kittens when um, they... Um, when the Valar darn well say they should have kittens, right? Um, but in addition, they also die. They also die. Things are mortal. It's not the Undying Land. Not as far as the plants and beasts are concerned, in any case, right? Um, I mean, we know this for a fact. We've always known this for a fact. Because they eat. Even if they eat plants, then um, mostly that marks the terminus of that particular plant's career, right? Um, so, uh, so yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, it's definitely there's definitely death involved. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, Jocelyn, they call them kittens in Watership Down, so that's what baby bunnies are called, officially, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, anyway, so... Um, uh, so, yeah. So there's death. But don't confuse this with death, capital D. It's not... There's death, and then there's death. But there's no death, capital D, in Amon. It is the Undying Lands with a capital D. It's just that things die there. But they don't die. Got it? Hope so. When you do, maybe you can explain it more to me. But now it is possible, though not certain, that the Valar could have graced or blessed the Eldar singly or as a whole in like manner. So they could have micromanaged the Elves similarly. But they did not do so. For, though they had, wisely or not, transported them to Amman to save them from Melkor, they knew that they should not meddle with the children, or attempt to change their natures, or dominate them in any way, or rest their being in Roa Orfea to any other mode than that in which Eru had designed them. Okay, so back off the children of Iluvatar, right? No micromanaging here. No micromanaging here. Kendall wants to know, how does this affect my Nessa in the Hobbits theory? 
Um, nobody ever found out, man, Kendall. That's why it's not in the histories, right? Um, I think don't meddle with the children unless you won't get caught. Would be... <laughs> I don't know, but Kendall, I, 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 I don't know, but I can't, um, I, 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 I don't know any other way. How do you explain hobbits and druidine if nobody ever did any meddling at all? Right. I mean, and first of all, no, not first of all, cause I've already been talking. And next of all, Kendall, I would say, what about the Numenorians? Was not that meddling? The whole three-to-one lifespan thing? Sounds like a meddle to me, right? So, there's going to be a certain degree of meddling with humans, which is apparently going to be okay. Not to mention the fact, height differential, hello? Like, the Numenorians are not only um, long-lived, they're super tall. There was meddling. There was meddling. The Numenorians got meddled with. I, I think that's plain. I think that's plain. Um, but, um, yeah. Was that meddling by Eru? Maybe. Maybe. Um, and maybe Eru meddled directly to make the Druidine and Hobbits too. But I still don't think that it's not okay for Nessa to be involved. Anyway, um, yeah. Change their natures, dominate them in any way, rest their being in Hroa or Fea to any other mode than that in which Arrow had designed them to. That's the hard one. That's the hard one. Um, Numenorean beings got rested. There was some resting with a W, involved there, for sure. For sure. Um, yep. Yep. Okay. One more. However, they were from the beginning, and so still remain, close kin of men, the second children, and their actions, desires, and talents are akin, as are their modes of perception and thought. They do not think and act in ways unobservable or actually incomprehensible to men. To a man, elves appear to speak rapidly, but with clarity and precision, unless they, unless they a little retard their speech for men's sake. To move quickly and featly, I love that word, to move quickly and featly, unless in emergency, or much moved, or eager in their work, when the movement of their hands, for instance, became too swift for human eyes to follow closely. Only their perception and their thought and reasoning seems normally beyond human rivalry in speed. They were from the beginning elves, were from the beginning, and so still remain close kin of men, the second children. And their actions, desires, and talents were akin as are their modes of perception and thought. They do not think and act in ways unobservable or actually incomprehensible to men. They do not think and act in ways unobservable or actually incomprehensible to men. 
Notice how far, just in these first 12 chapters, since where he started from an elvish world-building standpoint. Look how far Tolkien's gone. And this is where I wanted to come back to that um, persistence of comparing elvish lives to human lives. It's not just the mathematical ratios that he's trying to work out. It's not just a narrative prop. Conceptually, elves are becoming, in Tolkien's mind, more and more like humans. They do not think and act in ways unobservable or actually incomprehensible to men. That could not be said about elves in earlier versions of this. They do approach things differently. They do think about things differently. This desire, which we have seen from literally the very first mathematical table that Tolkien did out in this whole section, we have seen his desire to connect elves to men. At first, it seemed like just a kind of a rule of thumb, just a kind of help, right, um, to um, help us to conceptualize things, a sort of aid to the story, so that for the human audience, because he was pretty much assuming that the vast majority of his audience would in fact be human, right, to help them understand, to help them kind of begin to... Uh, relate to them. But more and more, and increasingly, he is saying the parallels between them are very, very close. This feels like a shift to me. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm overthinking that. Maybe I'm overstating that. You know, maybe uh, maybe this is jumping out to me as more than um, Tolkien meant it. S- certainly he did always have his elves be akin to the second children. Their actions, desires, and talents were akin. Sure. Sure. That was always pretty much true. Um, but to say that they don't think and act in ways unobservable or actually incomprehensible to men? I mean, I guess if men apply sufficient reason and imagination, they can wrap their minds around how an elf must think or might think, right? But let me tell you what this, an example of where I'm feeling a shift, where there feels to me a gap. Um, Dreaming and memory. We're told, Legolas tells us, that elvish dreams are different. Well, Gimli tells us, which he's presumably learned from Legolas. But anyway, um, we hear about elvish dreams. We hear about elvish memory. And we hear about elvish art. And all of those things are different in kind. Just... They are not modes of perception and thought of which we are capable. They're not unobservable. I mean, 
if you are listening to elvish art, you will have the experience of fairy and drama, to use his ex expression from, um, unf uh, not unfinished tales, uh, from uh, on fairy stories. Um, that is, when you experience elvish art, you don't just hear the story, you live it. You enter the secondary world and you mistake that secondary world for a primary world. Um, and elvish memory. Walking in elvish memories seems to work like that, too. I can picture some vivid memories in great detail. I can close my eyes and imagine myself there, but that is not the same as walking among their memories in the way that we were told that elves can do, right? Um, that's actually incomprehensible to me. Um, and as far as the memories are concerned, unobservable. The art's not unobservable, but I can't do it, right? Um, anyway, it feels to me like he is pushing elves and men together more closely than they have ever been pushed before. And I don't know if this movement together is a consequence of him insisting on this comparison, insisting on this parallel, always, always, always translating elf life and elf experience into human life and experience, not just for the... Again, at first it sounded like it was just for the sake so that we could understand it. They're very different from us, right? And so we might not be able to relate to it at all or, or, or you know, we, we might not be able to comprehend it, but in order to help us comprehend it, he's going to translate it into our terms, right? As a service to the reader. But now it seems that that conversion, that translation is not just uh, an aid to the reader, but has actually altered elves themselves so that elves are now even more like men than before. And again, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's how it always was in Tolkien's mind, and he's just now saying it sufficiently plainly for me to get it through my head that that's true. It's possible. Um, but it feels different to me. Um, it feels like a drift. But as I say, I might be wrong. All right, I'm going to stop because the last several weeks, my internet has given out it right around this time. When I've tried to go a little bit over time, I've regretted it. So I'm going to stop while my internet is still working tonight. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining me tonight. Next week, I think I'm, I'm not going to be able to do next week. Um, I'm pretty sure it's not even on the original schedule. So um, next week's Thanksgiving week. People are going to be, uh, in America anyway, it's Thanksgiving week. People are going to be traveling. Um, I've got folks, my son's coming home on Wednesday night. So um, anyway, I'm, uh, so we won't meet next week, but we will be back the week after. So the 1st of December will be our next session. For next session, let's, let's see. Where should we read to? Um, we're pretty much done with chapter 12. So I was originally going to do a, a pretty ambitious jump forward. There is a lot that I want to talk about in chapter 13, but there's much less that I want to talk about after that. 
um, for the next couple of chapters, which are mostly tables. Um, let's go ahead and read through 18. How about that? Let's read through 18, and we'll see how we do with that. Okay, so up through chapter 18. Um, all right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, I, uh, I appreciate your joining me, and I will see you in a fortnight. Talk to you later. Bye now.